0: Can I please have your attention, Daniel Dickens! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, We have a great guest today. I think this is his second time on here. Um, I'm a big fan of his work. I will, I, I will use this moment to confess that I have not dived as deep into his latest book as I would like. But you will after this conversation. I will. De- well, I will actually, after doing my homework this morning and yesterday, um, I've started to dive in and I have questions for you about Foucault. But um, I'm a huge fan of his work and um, uh, I should probably just get around to introducing him. Yasha Monk, um, he's a writer and academic. He's born and generated to, Bol- to Polish parents. Um, he's got a BA from Cambridge and a PhD from Harvard and all that fancy stuff. He's, um, a contributing editor of the Atlantic. He's a senior fellow at the council on foreign relations. He teaches at Johns Hopkins and his latest book is the identity trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Yasha Monk, welcome back to the remit. Thank you so much. All right. So first question as always is what's your book about? (laughs)
1: Well, my my, my book is called The Identity Trap. It is uh, about a novel ideology, a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation uh, that have become very prominent first in academia and then in many of our mainstream institutions throughout the United States and beyond. I think this ideology is a genuine departure from a lot of the assumptions that the left used to have even as recently as 10 or 15 years ago when i arrived in this country and it's striking to me that there hasn't been much work and certainly not much serious work trying to understand where these ideas come from how they could become so powerful and then critiquing them from a serious philosophical point of view um i understand that these ideas have real allure, they claim that they are the way in which we can remedy genuine injustices that persist in our country in the most uh, radical and principled way. But I fear that uh, the people who are lured into accepting these ideas are going to regret doing so, both because it actually makes it harder for us to accomplish uh, the the kind of political solidarity and the kind of political institutions that we need to sustain prosperous and tolerant societies, and because it's a personal trap, it tells people to think of themselves in ways that will not get them the kind of social recognition and social equality that they rightly seek.
0: Okay, I want to I want to let you flesh out the thesis a little bit before I turn tables on you in a in a way that I know you've done a lot of podcasts on this book because I've listened to a few of them. Um, and so I want to try to plow some new territory in a, in a certain way, but uh, but let's let's get to the thesis a little more deeply. Um, you you talk about lure, right? The word that you use is trap. Why don't you sort of explain why it's a trap? Well,
1: what's interesting about the metaphor of a trap, right, is that to work effectively, it has to have something that draws you in, right? Uh, There's a piece of cheese or something. Uh, A a lot of times that that makes you want to come into the trap, right? Um, And I understand that in this political moment in the United States, a lot of people feel that there's uh, a genuine threat from the kinds of uh, far-right demagogues and populists that you and I both oppose. Um, uh, I think it's absolutely right, but America has uh, had deep historical injustices and that we still have uh, some of a legacy of that to grapple with. And so that makes it, and and of course, you know, politics at the best of times, as Max Weber says, is this slow boring of hard boards. It's uh, never quite gives you the results you want and slowly at that. And at the moment, if you're looking at the chaos in Congress at the moment and so on, it feels particularly hopeless to get uh, a remedy through our institutions. And so all of that helps to explain why a bunch of people started to coalesce around an idea that uh, said, uh, the problem with our institutions is not that we haven't lived up to their ideals. It's not that progress is insufficiently slow, is, is insufficiently fast. It's that actually we haven't made uh, any progress at all. It's that actually uh, our universal values, neutral rules, institutions, uh, and documents from the uh, Declaration of Independence, to the Bill of Rights, uh, and even civil rights era legislation, they are not the things that have allowed us to make progress historically. They are the things that have stopped us from making historical progress. And so perhaps we have to reject all of those ideas, and norms, and documents, and just start from scratch. Um, I, I have empathy for people who end up in that position. I think you can see how smart and well-intentioned people can be attracted to that law. I fear that it is going to be a trap. And let me say a little bit about the kinds of ways in which it's going to be a trap. One is that many of the organizations that have embraced the kinds of social norms and ideas that had flown from this, of deferring to each other on the basis of your identity, of calling out anybody who has offended you, that whether or not they uh, are really guilty of uh, some terrible world or behavior or they inadvertently uh, defended you, uh, or offended you. Um, Uh, the forms of defenestration uh, uh, and and, and call-outs that have become so prominent in many spaces have made it much harder for important institutions to do their work. Some of those institutions are explicitly left-leaning or progressive uh, ones, uh, uh, some of which have important missions. Um, uh, a lot of them are also mainstream institutions, institutions like TED, which was embroiled in huge turmoil in the last days, institutions like the New York Times. Um, the, the second thing I worry about is the, the way in which this has changed how we educate children, uh, what message our institutions send about how we should relate to each other as Americans and how we should raise the next generation. Um, some of the most influential Educational consultancies now, like one uh, characteristically called "Embrace Race," think that the main goal of our education should be to get children to think of themselves as "quote unquote" racial beings, and uh, you know this sometimes involves practices like going to third grade, second grade, first grade classrooms and separating kids out into a black group, a Latino group, an Asian American group, and a white group. Uh, the The hope of this is to uh, you know create activists out of minority. Uh, students and create, uh, uh, you know, uh, white students who are deeply aware of a white privilege and fight against injustice. Everything I've learned from history and from social science makes me think that the outcome uh, that's likely is a different one. It's a zero-sum conflict between different groups, in which those white kids don't become great uh, Ira Max Candy-style anti-racist activists. They start to think, well, this is my group, and that's what's most salient about me. I'm going to fight for the interests of those groups. And then you've created racist and white supremacists rather than anti-racists. I worry about the impact this has had on public policy as we've uh, made routine the implementation of so-called race-sensitive public policies, which make how you're treated explicitly depend on the identity group of which you're a part. This was very visible during the pandemic, uh, where uh, a key program helping restaurants survive uh, the economic turmoil of those years uh, uh, prioritized restaurant owners on the basis of a race rather than on the basis of how much revenue they had lost. And we saw it even, perhaps we can come back to that in key decisions about how to distribute life saving vaccines right. by the CDC. And finally, I think it's politically a trap because uh, the victory of Donald Trump in 2016 allowed a lot of these ideas and norms to become so dominant on the left because it became so hard to argue against them in many spaces. But the dominance that these ideas now have in a lot of mainstream institutions helps to explain why Donald Trump is running head to head with Joe Biden in polls for 2024. I don't personally share this judgment, but more Americans now think that the Democratic Party is too extreme and think that the Republican Party is too extreme. And according to a recent analysis in the New York Times, about a 10th of Republican voters come from a new group that is predominantly non-white, quite young. Predominantly pretty progressive on social issues, but so worried about the hold that "quote unquote" wokeness has of our institutions, that they're fully intending to vote for Donald Trump in twenty twenty four.
0: Yeah, so I, I listened to you talk to Charlie Sykes and 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 Coleman Hughes and a couple others, and and one of the points that I would want to just sort of lay down my priors about is I'm a passionate both sideser. Um and uh, but I don't think. A lot of people think that criticizing both sides implies a symmetry or a moral equivalence between both sides, and I don't think that's right. For cultural, sociological reasons, all sorts of reasons, there's a profound asymmetry. The the, the people that you're picking an argument with have way outsized cultural power in elite institutions, um, that the right doesn't. And and but the right has outsized power in electoral politics and so you know as someone who really does not like this whole new right-wing post-liberal integralism stuff at the same time i i struggle to take it too seriously right now because i just don't think it has a lot of intellectual power behind it um and so the the way i look at it is the intellectual threat to classical liberalism rightly understood right where you and I probably disagree about the welfare state and a bunch of different things, but we both are classical liberals in that core way, right? Um, the intellectual threat to classical liberalism seems obviously more from uh, on the intellectual side from the left and greater on the political side from the right. Um, and that has to do with outsiders and insiders and the way populism works, the way elitism works. And what drives me crazy about this moment is that I can have a perfectly fine conversation with the left winger about the threat from the right. And I can have a perfectly fine conversation with the right winger about the threat from the left, but I can't have, I can't have a conversation with the right about the right or with the left about the left. And that's sort of the betwixt and between that I I kind of find you in.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I guess for all kinds of historical and biographical reasons I come from the left and still consider myself to be on the left. So perhaps I'm the one left winger you can have a conversation w- with about the left, but I, I, I agree with about your broader, six of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, right. there's you, there's Jonathan Haidt. There's, I mean, there are a handful of you, right, but, right. you know. Yeah.
1: No, I, I agree with your broader diagnosis. I mean, the simple way to put this is just that, you know, the nature, there's this is dumb debate about like, you cancel, no, you cancel, no, your side is worse at canceling, right? Right. And it obviously depends on... Uh, who you are and what your job is. If you are a member of a explicitly conservative organization, um, if you're a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, when there is very strong cancel culture from the right you mm-hmm. criticize Donald Trump too much at heritage best of luck keeping your job best of luck you
0: support your the friend. war in ukraine you lose your job at the heritage foundation
1: exactly yeah. and that's the, uh, exactly the, the kind of narrowing of debate and imposition of a party line that i think is really damaging to institutions think tanks have a right to employ people they find politically uh, uh simpatico but i think when uh uh you know you cannot criticize your own anymore for fear of losing your job, that is really unhealthy for the kind of intellectual culture you create. And that is a very strong problem on the right. Now, if you are in an organization that is explicitly progressive, then you are worried about a different set of threats. And importantly, if you are in an organization that is facially neutral, you worry more about the left than the right. You know, I've Mm -hmm. had uh, Trumpists calling for my head over various things I've said and written. When that happened, I was never worried that my yeah. dean or my department chair is going to call me up and say, "Ooh, you know, the MAGA crowd is really <laughs> upset with you." Right? When people on the left have in bad faith accused me of bad things, um, I did worry about that, and once or twice I did get that email. Right? Um, so it just is a different. Uh, so so it depends on where you are. If uh, you are in a facially neutral institution like a university, a corporation. Um, or uh, a think tank that claims to be nonpartisan, you tend to be much more worried about that threat from the left, right? So that's sort of on 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 on, on the idea of like where the limitations of speech are. And then there's a broader question of like where's where's the threat coming from to these ideals, right? And I would say three things. One, the bigger political threat is from the right, in part because the right is much more likely to win elections. I think if a left wing populist runs against a right wing populist, the right wing populist nearly always wins. Second, the deeper intellectual threat and the more interesting intellectual threat comes from the left. Um, You know, uh, some people have said in response to my book, well, identity politics, that's that's always been on the right and it's white identity politics. At one level of description, that's absolutely true. Of course, we've had white identity politics in the United States since its founding. Um, But what we now observe on the left is a genuinely new ideology that has very different roots and that is attractive for different reasons. And grappling with that, I think, is an important thing in part because the arguments against right-wing afno nationalism have been well made. I've made them, a thousand other people have made them, uh, and they're not very interesting because it's not a very sophisticated tradition in the end. Um, the threat from the left, I think, is both more prevalent in these mainstream institutions and more interesting intellectually, more worth grappling with, more worth understanding, in part because it's new and in part because it's, I think, more sophisticated, actually. I mean, third, just in practical political terms, one of these things is the end to the other's yang. It's not just that you're sort of like, oh, you know, one is more important to the other. And so is the other still important enough that we deal with it? We're only going to be able to beat far-right extremism if something other than the magnified Republican Party wins a crushing majority in American politics. And we're only going to be able to win a crushing majority or perhaps a majority at all. If, the leaders of those institutions and political parties and those presidential candidates very clearly reject this influential, but deeply unpopular ideology on on the left.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would argue it's, whether you want to call it Hegelian or symbiotic or whatever, but there is, the people who benefit the most from the high watermark of defund the police talk were extreme left-wing academics at the University of California and extreme right-wing pundits. It they both benefited and everybody in the middle suffered because of the stupidity of the argument. And yeah, it was it was Ibram X. Kennedy and Donald Trump who profited. Right, and there is this. I mean, our friend, mutual friend, David French. You know, I think he's a coin nut picking where you pick the worst oh, aspect. Oh, is that David the, came up with that term? I think it was. At least no. I, th- I, I never, I, I never heard it until him, and I think he credited himself for it. But you know, you pick the worst gargoyle on the other side, you hold them up like Medusa's head, and you say, "See, this is what their that whole tribe is like." Right. And then the other side does it to our side. And so, like, you know, the 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 right now is all Marjorie Taylor Green and Matt Gates, and the left is all Elon Omar and you know and AOC. And it does a profound distorting disservice to actual debate and in politics. But I, I do I do wanna push back, and part of this is devil's advocate um on a couple things. One I would like if I were arguing with a left wing identitarian and they said, well, we always had white identity politics. I don't think that's necessarily I don't think that's entirely true in this country. Um, the definition of who was white was a moving target for a long time in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, uh, you know, w- w- the bohunks of, you know, and the Jews and my people who came off boats, um, they were not generally considered white, you know, by a lot of people. Um, the but the more important point, I, I, the more important point is like, I've been on this kick for a while. I love intellectual history, spent my life reading intellectual history. I'm not saying intellectual history is not important. I know you come as training as an intellectual historian, but you keep saying that wokeness or whatever we're going to the identity trap or identity synthesis is a new idea. And long time listeners of this podcast know is that I have increasing skepticism of any claims that anything is a new idea. Um, new branding. <laughs> sure. Right. Uh, new concentration of facts and context. Sure. Right. But like um, I'm kind of with Calvin Coolidge in his 4th of July speech where he says, you know, I I'm, I'm kind of with Francis Fukuyama on this is that I do think that broadly speaking, liberal democratic capitalism really was in an important way, the end of history and virtually all of the new isms that people come up with um, including a lot of the ones that are now old, Marxism, fascism, Nazism, these are all different forms of reactionary thinking. And so identity politics or identitarianism, it's a very old idea, it takes many forms. I mean, Demist is the guy who says about the, Demeist is the guy who says about the enlightenment, you know, I've, I've met Russian man, I've met Persian man, I've met this man, I've met, but I've never met this, this creature called man, right? There's this idea that the iron cage of identity the people that you engage with in here, and I think you do a fantastic job, but um, from what I've read, but like I got drenched in this stuff in college. I had more Foucault than Federalist Papers. I did Derek Bell. I did, you know, we didn't even call it critical theory. We just called it theory. Cause like the only theories you were allowed to talk about were all this stuff. And, um, and so when woke comes around, I'm like, I've, this all rhymes with the stuff I learned 15, 20 years ago, um, now 30 years ago. And, um, and so I'm, the reason why I, 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 will stop monologuing in just one second. The reason why I think the new idea thing is dangerous and this is less an accusation at you than it is at just the, the way the dynamic always works is the left comes up with what they claim to be a new idea. The right takes them at their word and says, oh, well, this isn't just political correctness. This is something completely new that we in our new Saul Alinsky fever ha- have now have permission to abandon all of our old responses to it. Right. So like there's this whole context on the right now that wokeism or this jackass who's the chairman at, at the Claremont Institute calls woke communism, whatever, you know, whatever the label is, it's all nonsense. Right. Um, and I don't like wokeism, but is such a novel threat that the old fusionist conservative arguments, the old liberal arguments are Uh, inadequate. And so we have to respond fighting fire with fire. And then the right says that, and it gets back to this dialectic thing. The left says, look, these guys are rejecting all the norms. That gives us permission to triple down on our rule breaking. And that's how you get this vicious cycle. And if everyone could just sort of say, hey, look, Industrial policy, not a new idea. Identitarianism, not a new idea. We have answers to this. The classical liberal philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff and they think it's a bad idea. It's a siren song. It's a trap, as you put it. Let's not do this again. And yet we do it again and again and the things get worse each time. Anyway, what is your response to that general point of view?
1: Yeah, a few things. Um, The first is that whether something is new or different or whether it is old or the same always depends on the level of abstraction you're looking at it for, right? Sure. There's some theory on the internet, I forget the exact four categories. For instance, like every food can be classified as either a super a sandwich, <laughs> a, a noodle dish, or like some fourth thing, right? And, you know, you can try and find up of counter examples. And depending on how much you want this theory to work, you end up saying, well, that's, you know, uh, uh, Chinese dumplings are, are kind of like ravioli and kind mm-hmm. of like pierogi and kind of not, you know, like you can sort of yeah, pick yeah. your, you know, in the same way, you know, in the history of ideas, um, there isn't progress in the kind of way that there is in, uh, nuclear physics, mm-hmm. uh, in one form or another, every thought that we have about politics has been bandied about for four or 5,000 years. Uh, And nevertheless, the kind of ideas and assumptions we have today are quite different from the ones that people had in the day of Plato and Aristotle. So I think, you know, in a way, there's a half full, half empty debate. I I do think that um, the main themes that come from the intellectual history I trace in the combination they now stand are very illuminating about the nature of social justice politics and quite different from what we have at previous junctures. So very briefly, those are a skepticism about objective truth rooted in Foucault, a use of a kind of politicized form of discourse analysis uh, rooted in Edward Said, which explains why a lot of politics now is not arguing for legislation but saying that this or that movie is problematic or we need more representations in that kind of form. Uh, the form of what you call strategic essentialism inspired by Gayatri Spivak, which means that these essentialist accounts of philosophy might in theory be wrong, but for strategic purposes, we have to encourage oppressed people to double down on their identity. That explains why in activist spaces, um, when people say um, race is a social construct, and then 10 seconds later, they go to say black and brown people want this. Uh, that's rooted in strategic essentialism. The deep skepticism about the ability to make progress uh, and therefore the call for more race-sensitive public policies that make how we're treated explicitly depend on the group we're from, that comes from Derek Bell. And then finally, the sort of, broadened version of intersectionality that comes from Kimberly Crenshaw, which means that we can't understand each other if we stand at different intersections of identities. And that to be a good, you know, a member in good standing in any progressive organization, you also have to sign up to 17 other claims that other groups within the space make. I do think that those things together uh, explain a lot about our contemporary politics. Um, and And in that combination are are, are novel in important ways. Now, the second thing I'll say is, look, if you're in college reading Foucault and Bell and so on, and you're telling me it's not new, my answer to that is, well, you read the exact tradition that I've outlined in the book. <laughs> that is where I think these ideas come from. That is, you know, what's new is these thinkers that you're looking at. Foucault and Bell are very different from other thinkers, but but they are the ones who founded this tradition. Now, your follow-up question is, you read this 30 years ago, but I'm talking about something that happened 10 years ago. And here I have an answer that is clearly delineated in the book where I think one question is, what is the origin of the more sophisticated versions of these ideas? And for you might've read too much Foucault and too much Bell, I think both of those are people who it's worth taking seriously and worth reading.
0: I got a lot um, out of so, reading them. I, didn't, but, I read them too much, but I read, you know, it was worth reading them somewhat. Yeah.
1: No, exactly. And I, I, I try to spare people the Pleasure or pain of reading them by by summarizing the Fort and how it came together in the book. But then what happened? And that's the second part of my book, is that they were vulgarized and popularized on Tumblr and Fort Catalog and Box and the Washington mm-hmm. Post over the course of the last ten years. And uh, so 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 the ideas that we see today root in that tradition. That at this point is between fifty and twenty years old but they took on this viral form that is able to have much more influence over the course of, of, of the last 10 years. So, you know, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi uh, are not very original thinkers, they certainly not sophisticated or coherent thinkers, but they did manage to package those older ideas in a new form where they had a new virulence. Now, to your last point, to your set of concerns about why we shouldn't exaggerate how new this threat is and then how to respond to it, On that, I think I broadly agree, which is to say that clearly the upshot that people like Chris Rufo have taken from all of that, but A, um, these people are not to be argued with and you can never persuade anybody who holds these views. Um, uh, And B, uh, we cannot try to push back against this in the culture within liberal institutions, but rather we ourselves have to legislate in an illiberal manner in order to win back the space. We have to emulate their playbook in order to fight their ideas. And in some ways, go even beyond uh, the attacks on free speech that they have by saying uh, that you can't teach certain ideas at public universities in Prada, for example. Obviously, we fully agree that that is a very wrong-headed uh, and and, and bad idea.
0: Yeah, so... and, and I'm I'm overstating my case a little bit because I do think ideas are important, and I do think you know uh, Matt Ridley, my friend, who um, wrote a great book about um, innovation. And one of the takeaways I had from that is innovators are different than inventors. Inventors make a device or a compound or whatever. The innovators take stuff that other people invented and combine them in novel ways, right? And so a lot of intellectuals, intellectual activists. They take these things off the shelves, they put them together in a new way, and it has this new appeal that people say, oh, it's a new idea, when really it's an amalgamation of old ideas. The place I'd push back just a little bit on it is, and you, again, you know political theory better than I do, but there's, at the point of, what was it, the Marxists called? It, praxis, right? You know, the whatever the motivations are, whatever the deep philosophical uh, cathedrals that people build about why intersectionality is important, this and whatever that. People have had reasons in democracies and in non democracies for 5,000 years to say, my historically aggrieved group deserves some special favors because of it. My historically aggrieved group deserves some compensation um, or some representation. I mean, the Gauls made that argument to Caesar, right, about joining the Senate. Um, And it seems to me part of the liberal response to that, I'm gonna use liberal to describe classical liberal and progressive to describe the other thing, right? The liberal response to that is, I get it, we'll see what we can do, but you know we have rules here. And in our system, we judge people as individuals, we don't assign collective guilt, we don't assign inherited guilt, nor do we assign inherited righteousness or inherited, um, you know, uh, victim status. And it's a shame that the descendants of, of slaves over whoever, um, that those slaves could not, they should have gotten their 40 acres in a the mule. They never should have been slaves in the first place. All those things can be true, but you cannot set up a thriving liberal democracy where people aren't equal in the eyes of the law and the state. Now you don't have to be a zealot about it you can make you know affirmative action is originally proposed there's a very strong argument for it I I, I I could support it i'm against racial quotas hard quotas and that kind of stuff but like expanding your outreach trying to compensate in those kinds of ways having a liberal and the in the cultural sense attitude about trying to reach out beyond your own milieu and tribe that's all fine with me but at the end of the day whatever the motivations, no matter how novel the ideas motivating them are, they should not be able to translate into redeemable coupons for the allocation of resources and political power in a liberal, at a constitutional republic, right? Because, like, everyone's got, Jews have those arguments, too, and, you know, we don't make them, or we're not supposed to make them. And, and, um... But more importantly, uh uh A, it is very naive to think
1: that those historically marginalized groups that uh, supposedly are most deserving of those forms of special treatment are going to win those political battles, right? If you, in the same way in which you know, the left is convinced that it's going to win the battle for what the censor would censor, and people like Rufo think that they can build, win the political battle for what the legislation will censor. But in in reality, what we'll end up with is half of a country where you can't say one thing and half of a country where you can't say another thing. And I'd rather have a country where you can say what you believe in any context, right? Um, In the same way, uh, I think it's just a strange set of beliefs to hold to say that, you know, American racism is bad as it ever was in the country. is fundamentally white supremacist even today. And somehow, if you make public policies explicitly turn on uh, the race into which you were born, the people who are going to win out are always historically marginalized. I think mean, it's a very naive idea. And then uh, the political process, and we know how ugly political processes are in the United States right now, of fighting over those spoils, of saying, hang on a second, you're taking away those vaccine doses from, from us. We're going to fight for them. That is going to bring out the worst kind of zero-sum conflict, but has often doomed ethnically, religiously, and religiously diverse democracies.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point, point. Um, um, and also, you know, one of the things I, I've been fascinated by this what the what the evolutionary psychologist uh, John Tooby calls the coalition instinct, which is this natural desire, this na- an innate thing about forming teams, you know, and it's not just tribal or ethnic. And one of the great things in your last book, The Great Experiment, is you run through a lot of the social science on this. You can just arbitrarily assign A and B teams to a classroom, and very quickly oh, look at those A's. They're horrible people, right? I mean, like that. It, our brains get tribal really fast, really easily. And so like the stories you begin the book with about assigning people to embrace their race, the idea that those instincts won't kick in, particularly when the white kids are the only ones who are told they're on a bad team, right? I mean, when you tell, I mean, Cherry Berman and Jonathan and I have written about this too, is about how there's a lot of evidence now that if you keep calling people racist, it actually makes them racist where they otherwise weren't. And that's why that's why I, I picked a little bit of a, a sec- exception with you about the, the white identity history of white identity politics. America was a better place when Italian-Americans or Jewish-Americans or Irish-Americans, it never occurred to them to say, you know, as a white person, I think X. Well, I'm um, yes and no. Right. I, 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 I.
1: I guess I would argue that part of that politics was determining who's in and who's out, and the old wasp elite had a form of white identity politics that well, the Italians aren't white; they're swarthy, right? Uh, They don't count as white. There was a way of protecting the in group that uh, enjoyed the privileges. Um, But to the broader point, um, a couple of thoughts. First, you know, social psychology is really important for understanding politics, and. We have this powerful drive to form groups and to favor the in-group over the out-group. That is malleable. One of the great tasks of a society like the United States is to make sure that we think of ourselves in part as Americans or in part as people who support the New York Mets or whatever tribal group that is not just breaking down along these very clean ethnic and religious and racial lines because otherwise if that's how people, you know, I am deeply defined as a white person, uh, that is going to lead to those forms of zero-sum conflict that are, that are very, very dangerous. Um, now, I think there's real questions about uh, uh, how you can interpret this this new ideology. And I think it is one of the forms that this in-group instinct takes often what's most natural for you to gravitate towards is to say, well, my group is the ethnic in-group. And that can have a majoritarian form. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary saying the only real citizens of this country are people who are Magyars and uh, the Romanians living in our country and the Sinti Roma living in our country and any immigrants who are coming in, they're not real Hungarians, they don't count. But that instinct exists among every ethnic group in the world. And I do think that much of this Uh, identity synthesis, as I call it, much of the wokeness today, is a sort of highfalutin, uh, supposedly more noble channeling of those same ethnic in-group instincts. So I I get your point that it has a connection to older forms of ethnic in-group politics, but the justification it has and therefore the way it operates and the demands it makes is genuinely novel nevertheless. Our politics is always a mixture of social, psychological, evolutionary instincts and the way in which they play out in the current form. And you do understand both social psychology and the particular ideological constructs to see how it operates and also to to, to, to argue against it. And the, uh, the other point I want to make on that, on that point, slightly going back in the conversation, is uh, philosophical liberalism has, for 100, 150, perhaps 200 years now been the most important philosophy against which all radicals try to prove themselves. And that was true of Marxists in the late 19th century, it's true of fascists in the middle of the 20th century. It is true of the post-liberals on the right who somehow think they're going to build the Vatican states uh, in North America today. Um, uh, And I think it is true of this movement as well. And what is absolutely right is that all of those anti-liberal movements by virtue of being built and defined around a rejection of the same set of ideas wind up having some structural similarities. Um, So Marxism claims Broadly speaking, that the key way to understand the world is social and economic class. That's how you understand things. Secondly, that all of these bourgeois liberal ideals are just a way of pulling the wool over our eyes. Are just a way of making us blind to the way in which power actually operates. And the point is to make it easier for the bourgeoisie to keep screwing over the working class. And so, what you need, you need a revolution where you abolish the bourgeoisie and uh, uh, make actual progress. Now, what do you, uh, what are the three key tenets of the identity synthesis today? It's to say, number one, the key metric, the key way to understand, what, it's not social class, it's race, gender, and sexual orientation. But it's, as Jonathan Haidt would say, monomaniacal in exactly the same way. It just put some different content in. Secondly, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, even civil rights era uh, court judgments like Brown versus Board of Education or civil rights era laws, uh, like the Civil Rights Act, they are just a way of pulling the wool over people's eyes. We haven't made any progress at all, according to Derek Bell. America in two thousand is as racist as it was in nineteen fifty or eighteen fifteen. So what do we have to? Which do? is preposterous, we, just is as preposterous. An empirical And matter. it's offensive. It's not offensive to you and me or people living today. It's offensive to the victims of those injustices in the past. Um, uh, uh, and so what do we do? We have to rip up these institutions and 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 and, and put together. Now, you could run for similar similarities with the post liberals, et cetera, et cetera, right? The, uh, the set of claims is always the same because they are trying to push back against the same set of ideologies. Now, I think, nevertheless, it's important to understand the distinction because between people like Patrick Denine and people like Kimberly Crenshaw. They may have structural similarities in their beliefs, which are kind of striking, but they are nevertheless different. By the way, one important difference, but I haven't had much opportunity to talk about, and it's a little bit technical, but super interesting to me, is in the nature of the ultimate promise between Marxism and the identity synthesis. A lot of the structure is similar, but Marxism has a universal promise at the very end. We have a revolution, black box, not exactly sure how, the state will this away, the proletariat has become the universal class, and now everybody is truly a brother to each other. These distinctions have gone away, and we now live in this paradise where we are all living in solidarity with each other. Again, not clear how we get through the black box, not how it's worked out historically, not an ideology I'm attracted to, but you can see how that end point, if you believed it were realistic,
0: would be attractive. It's a very and Christian it, tale, right? I mean, it's just about an eschatology at the end through a struggle. Yeah, it, right. Yeah. yeah.
1: One of the strange things about the identity synthesis is that it's done away with an that eschatology.
0: That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah.
1: Because what provokes Uh, members of this tradition more than anything else. It is people like Karen or Barbara Fields or people like our friend Thomas Chatterton Williams who say uh, we should work towards an abolition of a category of race, right? We should move towards a world in which those categories precisely because they are um, uh, uh, wrongly essentialist accounts as somebody like Foucault would say. Um, go away. And they said, no, 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 no. That is the wrong lesson to learn from history. Actually, how we treat each other should uh, deeply and for the indefinite future and in many renderings forever depend into the kind of group in which we're born. So they've taken uh, the utopian promise out
0: of Marxism. Mm-hmm. No, that's an, that's that's a good point. And, and again, I, I like your point. It's a good one that I need to think about more about how The similarities between different schools of ideas all depend on your level of abstraction. And I I think that's, I think you're right about that. And it's a good way to think about it. But, you know, there is a, like, I, I, I I subscribe to the school that basically the romantic era never ended. And, uh, this whole listen to your, uh, your inner voice, your truly authentic self is the highest form of truth, romantic nationalism and romantic identity politics, all these things are still around. Anyway, this idea of eternal struggle against a a permanent enemy does have some echoes in people like Herder and and Ficht and like the sort of pre-Nazi philosophers about how life is struggle. Um, We are always going to be arrayed against these other tribes. And so the question is less about an end of history and more about sustaining a period of time where we are dominant, maybe even a thousand years. And um, um, again, very different ideologies, even though they share some anatomical, I I, I think. Well, so perhaps we we could make it
1: a little bit more concrete by talking about something like cultural appropriation. Because I think it brings out both the similarity and the difference in interesting ways. Now, I grew up in a culture in uh, Germany, born in 1982, when Germany was still pretty homogeneous. Uh, there were some immigrants, but the uh, uh, fiction of German politics at the time remained that uh, these guest workers, and implied in that was at some point the uh, the status as guests would end and they would return home, even though it was becoming obvious that that was not realistic. Uh, and so a very dominant theme of politics and of right-wing politics at the time was a worry for the ethnic purity of the German people, but also the cultural purity of German of Germany, right? A lot of right wings were upset about American cultural influences and the way in which these immigrants were transforming the country. We need to, you know, hold on to to, this, to German culture as a separate entity and draw very careful boundaries around that culture. Right Now, what's fascinating to me about the concept of cultural appropriation is that this is a concept mostly advanced on the left, which has some clear similarities. But this is your... your we are allowed to write uh, recipes for hamantaschen, but when bon Appetit Magazine allowed a gentle writer to write a recipe for hamantaschen, that was unacceptable, right? They unpublished the article and append, or at least they appended an apologetic note. I don't know that you can still find it on the website or not. I shouldn't really know um, uh And and so. You know, you have a strange similarity in these worries about whose culture is what, and preserving its purity and stopping other people from being influenced by it or influencing it in turn. And there's a real similarity here. But the vision of a country you end up getting and the vision of a culture you end up getting is nevertheless very different, right? The first leads you into Viktor Orban's Hungary, where there's one national culture of Magyar's um, and everybody else is at as best, as best tolerated as uh, a brief visitor, right? Um, what we are creating here is a country of five or six different rarefied cultures that within themselves are artificially uh, homogeneous and artificially rigid, uh, but that coexist in a very different kind of way. And, uh, you know, what the worst sin is uh, becomes different as well. In the first world, the worst sin is, um, you know, a man, member of a majority group uh, allowing this influence to infiltrate. They should be defending themselves against it. Whereas here, the worst sin is um, sort of the culture being appropriated from the outside, right? So, so again, you know, at a high enough level of abstraction, I think there's striking similarities between the two phenomena. And it's one of the reasons why I worry so much about the concept of cultural appropriation, why I argue that it's an incoherent concept that we should project in the book. But the closer you get to it, the more you realize that the kind of society and world it sets up is quite different. And understanding that distinction is, I think, important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think sort of where I think we, I think we would agree is that the, this is where social psychology comes in, is that the part of the brain that gives you sort of hungry for the Magyars and the part of the brain that says white people can't make Korean tacos um, uh, is probably adjacent, if not the same part of the brain, but the manifestation of it, the the, ra- the intellectual rationalizations go in different directions.
1: And, and therefore, and I think one thing I didn't pick up on earlier is what you're saying, you know, part of the argument and parts of the right now is you can't argue against this stuff because um, these people, it's a religion or it's a mind virus, or it's a whatever, you know, you, you can't convince those people. I think that's wrong for two reasons. It's wrong empirically. Some of the most uh, persuasive opponents of these ideas are people who once believed them quite deeply. Ibu Patel, an American interfaith leader, is one of them. He described being very drawn to these ideas as an undergraduate and being very shaped by them, uh, but ultimately realizing that they allowed him to critique, but not to build. And he didn't want to be somebody who, as he did in one episode, just goes to the... Show put on by this very kind professor of his, and says, "This is terrible. you know all the kids in the show have rooms of their own. so what about the families where kids don't have rooms of their own? you know this is colonialist and racist, and whatever he might have said, right or the isms he charged her with. Um, and she said, "Look, it's always easy to criticize, but why don't you try to do better yourself? and And he slowly recognized that he needed to escape from this ideology in order to be able to do that. So he's somebody who's changed his mind who's written very beautifully and movingly. About why other people should change their mind as well, and uh, uh, there's other people who I could who I could mention in that respect as well. Um, and the second thing is that I do think these are ideas, um, right? I mean, they, they may be filling a religion-shaped hole in American life in certain ways, but they are ideas that are articulated, but have been articulated, and uh, that means you can push back against them and win the debate. Now, the way you convince people is never that you know you have an onstage debate and the moment you make a brilliant argument, they recognize your intellectual superiority and surrender. That's just not how life works. But we all know that we've probably changed our mind about important things over the course of our lives. And we certainly know people in our lives who have changed and drifted politically in various ways, some better, some worse. Uh, And those are gradual processes. So I think when we're asking ourselves, can we persuade some people who now genuinely believe these ideas? And more importantly, can we Make sure that the people who are torn, who do have many philosophically liberal instincts, but who also want to be virtuous and who are genuinely worried about injustices in America and who think perhaps some of these ideas have a pull, can we keep them on the liberal side? Can we appeal to them? Can we articulate the convictions of a reasonable majority of Americans who don't want either Trump or this stuff? Yes, 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 we absolutely can. And and to do that, we have to descend level of obstruction a little bit. We can't do that at the highest level of abstraction, we have to actually be able to push back and say, here's why cultural appropriation is applied to cases that often are generally unjust, like white musicians stealing the music of black musicians who couldn't have careers. Here's why it doesn't articulate what was wrong about those cases. It wasn't that there was white successful saxophonists. It's that black musicians weren't allowed to perform in a lot of concert venues, weren't allowed to travel through a lot of the American South, weren't allowed to- Jim Crow sign was the with, problem. Jim Crow was a problem. And it doesn't tell us how to solve it because you wouldn't have solved it by stopping the white jazz musician. You would have solved it and to some extent did solve it by getting rid of Jim Crow.
0: Yeah, so that, that's where I agree. that That's what I was getting at earlier about how sometimes in a liberal democratic society in a constitutional republic, you may have some great arguments about why your people were wrong and all these kinds of things, but we just don't do certain things. You know, we don't throw away the system because of these kinds of things. And... And and so like your point about the debate I make a very similar point which is that when I debate people the goal I mean it's always it's it would be wonderful to reduce your opponent to an apologetic mess where they say oh my gosh I'd seen the light but that never happens the goal is to seem like the more persuasive and reasonable person to the median person in the audience right it is like they they're watching how these two people have their arguments And half, you know, a third of the room is automatically going to agree with the people with one guy, and a third of the room is going to agree with the other. But the trick is, how do you move the center of gravity slightly in your direction? And the place where I worry about this, and which is why I I agree with you, I I really like the point about the cultural appropriation point about past white artists. I've heard you make it before. Is that um, the 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 arguments you hear about cultural appropriation most of the time, which I reject. Entirely, my view of cultural appropriation is that's just a longer way of saying culture, right? Is cultures appropriate things, and and living, breathing, advancing cultures do it more than static ones that you know uh, never update anything. And, yeah, and
1: and, and in what, just very briefly, what I was saying just now, I was articulating why the concept of cultural appropriation is incoherent and leads us astray. I didn't articulate the case I also make for why that form of mutual influence is incredibly important and right. constitutes, as you're saying. All of our culture, the way we speak, what we write, how we write numbers and do math, everything, right? So it's it's an important topic because it would impede further human
0: progress in a serious way. Right. I mean the the argument that people make about white people not being able to play black music, if you took seriously at their if you took them on their own terms, it would also say that we have to get rid of jazz because that was black people taking European instruments and white folk stuff and coming up with a whole new art form, which is the quintessential American art form. And 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 it was fusionist. And as
1: I believe uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah has pointed out, you know, if uh, white people somehow shouldn't be scholars of W.E.B. Du Bois, then black people shouldn't be scholars of Shakespeare. And that is an offensive implication.
0: Yeah. And so this is, so I I, I agree with you that this is, this is the, the, the sort of the praxis point, which is that, I'm fine with listening to people to say this form of cultural appropriation is bad like I think blackface we all agree is gross and you shouldn't do it you know and because it's a kind of mockery um but at the same time uh the question becomes and therefore what right like are you going to have a law are you going to have a policy that says we are going to police the speech of people and that's where I think the Whether you're 100% right or only 70% right about the novelty of this stuff, novelty is not the issue, right? <laughs> the issue is regardless of your path, your arguments about why this time it's different and the government should pick winners and losers and the government should see people as groups rather than as individuals and that it should have a spoil system or it should get rid of due process for some people and not for others. We don't do that, right? Because that's your public policy proposals are the problem, right? And and, and so let's say you are in this debate,
1: right? Let's say that uh, you're at the Thanksgiving table or let's say that you're in your office and you're not bringing up politics, but somehow a political topic comes up and you want to say your piece. Uh, Let's say you're on a stage debating somebody for the benefit of an actual audience how are you going to be able to persuade those reasonable people in the middle? How can you actually appeal to them by saying, well, this is just the same thing we've always seen or by having the specific arguments that can actually counter what your opponent is saying and what the assumptions of especially many young people in this country now are going to be. And I think it's very clearly the latter. And so very self-consciously, I thought of myself as having Uh, two audiences in in, in writing the book. Uh, The first is people who already are convinced that these ideas are a trap, who already are very concerned about the role they now play in American society. And for them, I wanted to articulate a good faith critique of those ideas that isn't histrionic, that doesn't lead you astray into an illiberalism of our own, um, that doesn't turn you into a reactionary uh, and that is going to be a factor that actually is going to um, be convincing to somebody looking at this debate from the outside and the second thing I want to do is to um, uh, speak to people who are a little bit torn who feel the lure but have started to worry about the trap and so that 's why I hope you know I, I I think probably most people listening to this podcast may be a little bit more in the former camp and I hope that the book will be really useful to you if you're uh, trying to make those arguments. Um, I also think that, uh, uh, you know, uh, perhaps it's a good book for, for, for your slightly woker brother or your slightly woker <laughs> sister-in-law, um, who's not sort of way gone, otherwise she'll probably, you know, accuse you of uh, doing terrible things by uh, uh, gifting them this book. But I think if they're open to conversation, uh, this book is also designed to, to speak to and to appeal to them and pull them back from the brink
0: um okay I want to ask you a question I mean I, I we could go in a lot of different directions but I want to ask you a question that I'm, I'm fairly positive will annoy you um <laughs> and uh well you, you haven't annoyed me so far so we'll see all right well now now challenge accepted <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um I, I'm not going to get give you my full spiel about it but one of the few things that I have a certain level of intellectual historians expertise on is the history of neoconservatism and the popular conception of neoconservatism these days is basically bagel snarfing warmongers right and i reject <laughs> all of that neocons originally weren't even foreign policy people they were domestic policy people they weren't all necessarily pro-republican nat glazer you know daniel bell you can go down seymour martin lipsit became more conservative the 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 better way of understanding neoconservatism, the first wave of neoconservatism, public interest magazine, uh, neoconservatism, was that they um, were disillusioned by the excesses of where the left was going. And they rediscovered, partly through social science, um, the basic wisdom of American liberalism. You know, I'm speaking with broad brushstrokes because there are different people in different places on all of this. But basically, you know, Irving Kristol writes about the American Revolution as a successful revolution. Um, Nat Glazer gets deep, deep into sort of the public policy stuff. They embrace a sort of, uh, they discuss, you know, the, the, as Irving would put it, there were two cheers for capitalism because he was never fully m- moved over, you know, that kind of thing. And they were only called neoconservative because they were seen as betrayers. You know, Michael Harrington and these guys called them neocons as an invidious way. It was supposed to be, you know, conjure images of neo-Nazi or something um, as a invidious way to sort of anathematize them. And I think the right, the proper understanding of the original neocons is that it's more of a description of their journey than any specific ideological content of their positions because there was an enormous amount of. Heterogeneity when it came to actual ideas. And so I, I kind of count people like you and Jonathan Haidt and, and John McWhorter and a few others, and none dare call them neoconservatives, but you're basically going through the same thing in a lot of ways, insofar as the excesses of the left, the illiberalism of the left is kind of freaking you guys out. And you're saying, look, I don't want to go right, but you guys, you got to stop going left because that way lies folly and disaster. And we're on a pretty narrow path about what, what is allowed within the rules of liberal democratic capitalism. And you can be Denmark, right? Or you can be you know New Zealand, or you can be France, or you can be America, but you can't be where your ideas will take us. And every time I, I accuse people of ersatz neoconservatism from your tribe, uh, they bristle. So I'm just, I figured I should do it to you too and just see what you have to say about it.
1: Well, first of all, uh, there's worse things in the world than being mentioned in one breath with uh, John Hyde and John McWhirter. Um I, you know, I, I don't know whether history will spare us, you know, 50 years of uh a bit of student intellectual history uh, railing against us and blaming <laughs> us for everything that's evil in the world, but, uh, you know, perhaps it won't. Um, uh, you know, I think you know more about the history of neoconservatism than I do, and part of this is dependent on your interpretation of where exactly these figures uh, ended up, particularly on domestic policy. I do obviously have uh, some deep disagreements uh, with aspects of uh, what came to be known as neoconservative foreign policy, and part because we can look back at episodes like Iraq and see in hindsight, Uh, that it was a giant mistake. I mean, it was a knowable mistake in foresight, but it's more obvious in hindsight. Um, uh, You know, if all you're saying, now I'm going to go up a level of abstraction, (laughs) is that, you know, I'm somebody who's from the left and off the left, uh, who despite what some people might claim have not joined the right, um, but who is uh, aware of, the intellectual and sometimes a practical shortcomings of the left and is willing to make myself unpopular by uh, following what I think is the only true duty of a writer, which is to say anything that they believe to be important and truthful, whether or not it annoys people on Twitter, um, then I can see how there are some similarities. All right. Well, to be continued. <laughs> At my my retirement party, we can uh, can have a retrospective as to whether you turn out to be right or not.
0: I look forward to having uh, many more I told you so's than I've already earned. (laughs) Uh, Yasha Monk, thank you so much for doing this. Again, the book is The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Thank you for joining The Remnant. That was really fun. Okay, so Yasha Monk has left the studio. Um, I I really enjoyed that. Uh, It was... um, Um, as I was talking to him just now, before we left, um, I was trying to do something different that he hadn't gone on his book tour a zillion times. I was saying how it's, you know, when you're, when you're on your book tour, like when you actually get a new question about your book that you haven't heard 20 times before, it's, it's like a lifeline. And, uh, so he was happy to talk about some new things. Um, I think, uh, I think again, I will be proven correct about this, this, I mean, Can't call, can't call him a neocon anymore because neocon doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean anymore. But, um, uh, I generally think I am right. Not all of these guys will eventually ever call themselves people of the right in part because the right is doing the best it can to make itself unaccommodating to intellectually engaged defenders of liberalism, which was not the case in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, Uh, and the right is also, you know, in the early seventies, when neoconservatism became a foreign policy thing, uh, it welcomed the second wave of neocons like Norm Podoretz and those guys precisely because they had this newfound commitment to defending American interests and fighting communism. Um, refugee analogous refugees today, you know, they've got, they may hate the wokeness stuff but where are they going to go? They can't go to the right when the right is embracing its own kind of weird identitarianism and isolationism and all of the things that might make it, you know, they're abandoning all the things that might make it more attractive to the McWaters and the monks and, and that crowd. Anyway, probably a topic for another day. Um, Thanks for listening. I'm not sure when this is airing, but I may not be around when it is, but please let us know. I will be checking the comments and checking my email and uh please subscribe to the dispatch if you can check out the skiff and um uh you just go to our website go down to go to the podcast drop down thing and you can find the skiff and um um you can find instructions as well and uh uh i'll see you next time podcast.